0: Hello, I'm Kate Chabot. Welcome to SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and world affairs. Donald Trump does it again, a very public insider attack against NATO.
1: One of the presidents of a big country stood up and said, if we don't pay and we're attacked by Russia, will you protect us? I said, no, I would not protect you. In fact, I would encourage them to do whatever the hell they want. You got to pay.
0: He could be US Commander-in-Chief again. So on SITREP we ask, could Europe successfully defend itself against Russia without US
2: support. I do think that there are several options for Europe to defend itself in such a very worst case. But I do think it also means a lot of thinking ahead.
0: NATO is testing its ability to fend off an invasion in its biggest exercise since the Cold War. We'll witness some of the huge logistic operation.
3: The difference with Exat's steadfast defender is the sheer volume. And the time skills. We have split shifts, different vehicles that we don't necessarily see day to day.
0: And amid warnings, we're in a pre war era. Can defence really do more to combat the threats from climate change?
1: I think the answer is can we afford not to at least put some protection for the environment into our thinking? But it's going to be on a very small scale.
4: Zitrev. With Kate Chabot and Professor Michael Clark.
0: Mike, hi. Um, gosh, um, Donald Trump, he never fails to launch verbal dynamite, doesn't he? What, what was your reaction when he made those comments this week?
5: No, well, I mean, I think his mouth ran away with him, as it tends to do, and he was at an election rally. But we do know it's what he thinks, because we know he said to Ursula von der Leyen that uh, he's thinking of pulling out of pulling America out of NATO, he, he, he thought he should do, and that he has no confidence in NATO. And he he, he sort of shows that although he's, he's right about the question of NATO expenditure on defence, and all presidents are saying, that, are saying that, he has no idea about everything else that NATO does. So, you know, NATO is in the Mediterranean because it matters to the United States. NATO is in the Atlantic because it matters to the United States. Same with the Arctic. NATO is in Afghanistan because it matters to the United States. Um, you know, the idea that, that it's all one way is just a complete misunderstanding of what the alliance represents.
0: Mm, Well, we'll talk a bit later about the possibility of Donald Trump returning to the White House and what the reality of that might be. But to give this some context, let's explore the notion of European NATO having to defend itself in a conventional war against Russia without US military backing. Would it stand a chance? And if not now, when? We have some new data this week which will help us. And Sit rep Simon Newton has been crunching the numbers. Hi, Simon. Hello, Kate. Can we compare defence spending? Or We can compare it all we want, and we will in a minute. But it's capability that matters, isn't it? How does the military capability of European NATO nations stack up against Russia?
3: Well, I'm, I'm, I guess capability can mean a, a lot of things. It's clearly your ability to fight. And, and one of those elements is just the mass, you know, what kit you have, how many boots on the ground. So you can compare it in that sense, if you like. Um, this is the new Double s uh, military balance report, which came out this week. And it uh, looks at, you know, we can then look at it and see what a non-US NATO would be like. And I mean, if you look at personnel, for instance, and do comparisons in that sense, NATO as a whole has around 3.3 million active personnel compared to Russia's just over a million or so. But if you strip out the US component of that, which is about 1.3 million, you're left with a 2 million strong European force, about double the size of Russia's. Um, the Russians do though have to have to say they have about 1.5 million men and women in reserve um, and this NATO figure would also include obviously a big Turkish force and a can- Canadian component that we're assuming sticks, sticks with the alliance. Uh, if you look at tanks, NATO has around 6800 of them if you exclude the US element compared to Russia's 1750. But of course, Moscow has a lot of these in store. This report says they have up to up to 4,000 of them actually in storage. Some some areas actually say that's 10,000 aircraft. Russia has about uh, 1700 or so combat capable aircraft. and about 340 attack helicopters. NATO, even without the US, has vastly more, about 7,500 or so. So that's obviously just data. Of course, it's like a kind of military game of top trumps. But if you, if you stack up the NATO force, even without America, up against Russia, it should, on paper at least, be vastly
0: superior. And Mike, numbers of people, bits of hardware, only tell part of the capability story. But what do those figures say to you?
5: Yeah, exactly as Simon said there, if you look at it on paper, European NATO is immensely stronger than Russia and ought to win in any confrontation. But as George Robertson, when he was Secretary General of NATO, was so frustrated, and he said it many times, he said, look, we've got 2 million men, leave the Americans out of it, we've got 2 million men and women on paper, and we can't deploy 10,000 of them to the continent, to any part of the continent quickly. He said, it's absolutely ridiculous. And so what the issue is that we've got to convert, and NATO is doing this, we've got to convert what is there on paper into real short-term capabilities. So it's making the paper numbers real, in a in a capability sense and that is happening the argument is well is it happening quickly enough are we are we converting those paper forces to real forces mobilizable usable forces over a 15-year period a 10-year period or a two-year period that's the that's the real argument that we're having at the moment
0: and simon russia's capability is obviously heavily committed in ukraine and has suffered losses how are they doing at maintaining capability by replacing what's been depleted
3: yeah, I mean, this report says they've lost 3,000 main battle tanks since the war started. That's that's more than their entire pre-war inventory. But as I said, they've got about 4,000 or so tanks in storage. They've lost in the past year about 1,100 tanks. But Moscow's thought to have put about the same amount back into the field. The Russian defence sector went into a kind of deep freeze at the start of the war when the sanctions hit. But this report says that it's now recovered partly through a mix of huge increases in defence spending, uh, which is up by 68%, and the Russians' ability to dodge sanctions by using third countries. Uh, They've also rationalised production, so they're only making key items now. But in the case of tanks, it's still not not enough, really, to offset the attrition without bringing these old tanks out of uh, mothball. Rostec, the state-owned defence manufacturer, is making small quantities of T-90Ms and T-72s. And there's reports Russia was going to restart production of T-80s. But if you take that tank replenishment, for instance, only about 200 of that 1,100 were modern MBTs. The remainder were much older, going back to the T-55s. And it's the same with artillery. They can't get that fast enough. So they're having to draw on this reserve Russia has of about 3 million shells and obviously buy-in shells from North Korea, as we've seen them doing, which incidentally are often defective. So... The conclusion of this report is that Russia is swapping quality for quantity and it won't be able to do that indefinitely, probably for about three more years before the shelves are bare.
0: Mike, um, the spending figures make for perhaps confusing reading, though. Russia spends a bit over 100 billion US dollars on defence. That's equivalent to around 7.5% of its GDP. NATO says its European nations now average 2% of GDP, that fabled benchmark, adding up to more than 400 billion dollars. Russia seems to be getting more bang for its buck.
5: Uh, it does, because as Simon said, they're, they're swapping uh, quality for quantity, but if you look at it in in gross terms, I mean, the Russian economy is, let's compare it with Britain, it's about two-thirds the size of Britain, mm. and so they're spending you know more than four times what we are spending uh, as a proportion of GDP, but their GDP is quite a lot lower. In general, the Russians are straining now to spend what they spend. And they can spend more, but they'll strain more, whereas we are spending an amount that only vaguely inconveniences us. It's not really hurting our society to spend our 2.2 percent of GDP on defence. If we were to start to spend 3 or 4 percent, then we'd feel it. But at the moment, we're spending 2.2 percent and we don't even feel it.
0: So that is the capability picture. What are we to make of it? Could Europe successfully defend itself in a war against Russia right now? without U.S. military support. Rose Gautamola was Deputy Secretary General of NATO during Donald Trump's time as U.S. President and now lectures in international studies at Stanford University.
2: This has been uh, really a long-running discussion in the European Union with, of course, many European NATO countries also being European Union countries. And President Macron in France has been very stout about demanding that the Europeans do more about their own strategic autonomy with exactly this task in mind. I think the skills and the capability and the training of the NATO European member states is such that it had to be turned to a European Union mission or operation somehow instead of uh, taking place under the NATO rubric, that that would be quite possible. But frankly, it would also, I think, be quite possible for the NATO European countries as NATO to defend themselves under Article 5. So I do think that there are several options institutionally uh, for Europe to defend itself in uh, the case in such a very worst case. But I do think that it, uh, it also means uh, a lot of thinking ahead. Now, Russia
0: spends the equivalent of 108 billion US dollars on defence. European NATO nations are now spending well over 400 billion US dollars on defence. Money doesn't equal physical military capability, does it? But that does suggest European NATO should be able to more than outmatch Russia on the battlefield.
2: Absolutely. And I think the important point here, it was Donald Trump who first gave the allies a kick back in 2017, 18 and 19, while I was deputy secretary general at NATO. And he told them that they really had to pay up and spend more on defense. But it has actually been Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine that has sped up that process now and resulted in, I think, really significant expenditures as the European NATO allies have emptied out their stocks to uh, hand over to the Ukrainians to perpetrate this war, to fight this war. And then they have had to modernize and build up their own stocks again. And these are with systems that are much more interoperable uh, with the NATO standard. And I think that alone will help uh, if there has to be a fight.
0: And which of Europe's capabilities for self-defense are strong enough and which capabilities are we most
2: vulnerable in? I think that this uh, war in Ukraine shows that air defenses are going to be all-important, and air defenses not only against large uh, ballistic missile attacks, but also down to the tiniest drones. And so NATO has been looking for years at improving its integrated air and missile defense capabilities. And I think, you know, no matter what you think about this potential threat, Uh, to Europe itself. Nevertheless, the Ukraine war shows that it is absolutely vital to get moving in that area and to make sure that we have the full spectrum of defensive capabilities available against especially the new unmanned aerial vehicles, the smaller drones. And how much difference does
0: the addition of Finland, uh, and we expect Sweden as well, make to the alliance? It's more capability, but more territory to defend.
2: But when you look at the capability, I think that's the important point. Clearly, Russia is restaking its claim on the Arctic, uh, rebuilding military infrastructure there, and preparing uh, to defend what it sees as its natural right to control the Northern Sea passage. So if it should come to conflicts in the Arctic, here having uh, Finland and Sweden, in addition to the other Nordics, NATO members, Norway, of course, Iceland, Denmark, it will be very important to helping uh, the Alliance to be able to fight in that polar region, in the Arctic region. And so I think that definitely they are a net benefit uh, to NATO's fighting force in the future. That's not only in the polar region, but they have very capable air forces that have been already participating in Baltic air policing with NATO, training and exercising together with NATO. So I do think that net uh, gain is significant from Finland and Sweden joining the Alliance. And uh, Rose, we've been talking about a hypothetical. If we were to
0: see a second and present Trump term, would his leadership really match his rhetoric on NATO, do you think?
2: You know, I saw uh, him operate at NATO summits during my time as Deputy Secretary General, and the talking points he used in South Carolina were identical to some of the talking points that he was uttering at that time, all in, uh, I think, uh, His hope of getting the NATO allies to pay up. He's very much the businessman, very much uh, wanting to see payment for services rendered as he perceives it. Of course, that's a ridiculous notion in the NATO alliance. It's not paying up at all. It's mutual defense. It's working together to ensure the security and stability of Europe. But he sees it that way. Talking points are the same. What is the new talking point that alarms me? Uh, Because uh, it is so egregious and horrific is that he's advising Vladimir Putin to do what he wants if the allies don't pay up. And so practically inviting a Russian attack on the NATO alliance. And to me, this is, I believe that President Biden used the word unhinged yesterday when he spoke about it. I, I can agree with that description. I think it's unhinged behavior.
0: And uh, Rose, at the twenty eighteen summit, did he actually threaten other leaders to withdraw
2: from NATO? he several times he spoke about either uh, his uh, unwillingness to fulfill the Article Five commitment or talked about uh his uh, interest in perhaps drawing withdrawing from NATO he did that publicly of course a number of times including now on the campaign trail so it was that period of his previous pre- presidency uh that uh, we saw that kind of uh, that kind of language used uh, on a regular basis both in public and in private
0: it's going to be an interesting year for you in the US isn't it
2: very much so yes We're not the only election, though. Don't forget Vladimir Putin is up. That'll be a real um, cliffhanger, won't it?
0: Yeah, Rose, really good to speak to you. Thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure. Well, we can pick up on capability questions again in a moment. But, Micah, let's just deal with that question of rhetoric versus reality. You said at the end of last year the prospect of another Trump presidency might cause NATO to implode. It it seems to be standing up fairly well to this broadside, doesn't it?
5: Yes, everybody's saying the right things, but of course, words are cheap and everyone is alarmed by uh, what he's saying. I mean, they shouldn't be surprised by it, but they are alarmed by it and alarmed by the prospects that he may now become president again. That's a sort of 50-50 likelihood now, whereas it didn't look remotely like that a year ago. And what, what I mean about NATO imploding is is not that NATO collapses, but that it changes quite quickly because one could imagine in a Trump presidency, I mean, Hungary and Slovakia, and Turkey would, would immediately lean towards Putin in the Ukraine war, and start to do their own deals. And countries like Romania and Bulgaria would start to feel very vulnerable in the south, and Greece as well, and they would start to think about their own deals. And so NATO would split into a kind of a northern and a southern group. And the northern group undoubtedly would be based around the, the Joint Expeditionary Force, which is taking some real shape now and is moving into a digital um, conception of itself as, a, as an ultra high tech expression of these 10 countries not the united states or canada but the 10 european countries in the north which could be the the corpus of a new nato but it would be a different nato maybe it'd be stronger in some respects but it would be geographically weaker and so by imploding what i mean is that nato would suddenly become a a a, a rather odd north south confection with a lot of russian influence um imposed on the south and that would raise the question of whether nato is is uh viable at 32 or whether it should rethink itself and go back down to 15 or 18 and we might find ourselves having that discussion rather urgently in the light of the first year or two years of a trump presidency
0: it's quite a thought um simon we've talked mostly about the big hardware but the consumables the Mm. ammunition are also crucial a new plant for artillery shells has just opened in germany how much is that going to help our stretch supplies
3: yeah, so this is the new Rheinmetall factory in uh, Lower Saxony in Germany, which is going to produce around 200,000 uh, 155 millimeter artillery shells a year once, once it's up and running. It, it'll certainly help, clearly, but the, f- the figure that's often quoted for the number of shells that Europe actually needs to supply both Ukraine and restock its own arsenals is around 1.5 million a year, so this falls obviously well short of that. But there, there are other firms. BAE Systems are also ramping up production. They're increasing it, I think, eightfold uh, America's trying to make or aiming to make 100,000 shells a month by 2025. That's up from around 30,000 or so that it's producing right now. So, right across NATO, ammunition production is expanding, but of course, so is, is the consumption. Um, America's given Ukraine 2 million shells, for instance, already, but that's still not enough against this you know, Russian army that's firing maybe 5, 10 times as many shells. Uh, per day. And and on the subject of Ryman, it's worth mentioning that the CEO of that company at this opening made this comment at the opening of this factory that he thinks it will take 10 years Mm. for Europe's shelves to be restocked to the point that it's fully ready to take on Russia in a war.
0: Simon, great to speak to you. Thanks for your time. Right now, NATO is testing, training and showing off the scale of its military capability with its biggest military exercise since the Cold War. Exercise Steadfast Defender involves more than 20,000 troops, as well as scores of planes and warships, including the British aircraft carrier HMS Prince of Wales. Thousands of tons of army equipment has been shipped from Marchwood Sea Mounting Centre. Hannah King was there to watch.
6: We saw hundreds and hundreds of military vehicles lined up on a very grey day with horizontal rain down on the south coast. Foxhounds, jackals, Land Rovers, engineer tractors, support vehicles, all being loaded onto this huge 23,000 ton cargo ship, the MV Anvil Point, um, and bound for Germany. When this vessel is full, she can take a column of vehicles that stretches just over two and a half kilometres if they were lined wow. up nose to nose to tail. So, yeah, it was huge.
0: <laughs> so so give us some numbers on who and what is going and what they'll be doing on Exercise Steadfast Defender.
6: Yeah, so the 706 vehicles in total are being shipped um, for seven light mechanised Brigade, the Desert Rats, and one and a half thousand troops will fly out to meet them in Germany. Um, They'll be conducting exercises Brilliant Jump 2 and Polish Dragon 24, Um, but they're just two of a whole host of exercises under NATO's umbrella exercise that, as you say, is called Steadfast Defender. Um, One load had already shipped and should have arrived by now, and and the second ship that we filmed is now following on. And Hannah, this
0: test isn't just of what we can do on the battlefield. It also exercises our ability to get that kit and people out to a battlefield. It's quite the job for 17 port and maritime regiments.
6: Yes. So this place is called the Sea Mounting Centre at Marchwood. And it, it, it's fascinating in itself because this is where everything departs from um, to go anywhere in the world, whether it's needed on exercise or operations or resupplying the Falklands. The port was actually built built in 1943 for the D-Day landings. So, and like you say, it's all done by 17 Port and Maritime Regiment. They are the army's only maritime capability. They are specialists in military movements by sea. We'll hear first from Sergeant Baz Slater, who oversees the loading and unloading of cargo. And then after him, Captain Greg Jardine, who runs the port.
4: If
5: I'm brutally honest, it's routine for us. This is our this is our bread and butter. It's what we do on a daily basis. Um, not just for this exercise but various other exercises we send vessels all over the world for various operations and exercises we have everything from cranes forklift trucks container handlers tug masters we also have maritime capabilities such as army workboats combat support boats and Mexi floats which we use for ship to shore capability how
0: would you describe your job
5: brilliant love it it's hard work it's long hours uh, but
3: equally rewarding this is the troops will work until the vessel is completely loaded. The difference with exercise steadfast defender is the sheer volume and the time skills. So for all it is, our day-to-day business, it's a very reduced timeline. We have split shifts, different vehicles that we don't necessarily see day-to-day. Um, the guys are very hands-on. They're able to hone their skills.
0: And Hannah, we, we talked about the British contribution, but give us an overview of exercise steadfast defender from the whole NATO perspective. It is huge, isn't it?
6: Yeah, it's NATO's biggest military exercise since the Cold War. Um, And like I said, that's the umbrella term for lots of exercises taking place right across Europe. So it's going to involve 90,000 troops from the 31 NATO allies and Sweden. Um, And it's really just about, you know, practicing, preparing to repel an invasion by Russia should one happen. Um, But what we saw was only a a small section of our contribution leaving the UK. Um, in total, Steadfast Defender will involve 20,000 British military personalities, say, um, from across all three services. So let me fire a few more numbers at you. The Royal Navy is sending eight warships and submarines, 2,000 sailors, uh, a UK carrier strike group, of course, now led by HMS Prince of Wales rather than HMS Queen Elizabeth after her propeller shaft problem. So um, obviously... Along with uh, that goes all the F-35s, helicopters and the carriers, escort frigates and destroyers. They'll operate in the North Atlantic, Norwegian and Baltic Sea. Uh, There's 400 Royal Marine Commandos will be up in the Arctic Circle rehearsing, defending the alliance there. Then the army will be sending 16,000 troops heading for Eastern Europe um, with their tanks, artillery, helicopters. There'll be live fire manoeuvres and parachute jumps um, Army, Navy, Joint Helicopter Force involved and Special Ops forces also deployed. And then the RAF sending F-35, some Poseidon P-8 surveillance aircraft. So, yes, it's huge. Um, the largest NATO excise in a generation. And obviously getting everything and everyone there is a massive logistical challenge. Hannah again, good to speak to you. Thanks for that.
0: Thank you. Mike, um, Steadfast Defender is a real demonstration of how NATO has upped its game over the last 10 years since Russia first invaded Ukraine. All these recent warnings of future war in Europe come with different predicted timescales. Nothing imminent. But how long do you think we're safe to say that?
5: Well, I think the timeline is something between, at best, 30 to 40 years and at worst, two years. And it all depends on what happens in Ukraine. In the good scenario, Russia fails in Ukraine, Putin's imperialist venture fails, and that will have consequences inside Russia. Russia will have paid a huge price for that failure domestically and in in terms of its economy, and it will take Russia off the strategic front line for a couple of generations. That's the good side. The bad side is if uh, Putin prevails in Ukraine, then everything goes the other way because he will be very confident, He'll have a fully mobilized military and a war economy that's geared up, however inefficiently, for nothing but war. He will have momentum that this is his moment in history, which he thinks about a great deal, we know. And the West will be so diminished, so split by the failure to defend Ukraine that we'll be wide open. So, you know, in a good scenario, we've got two generations. In a bad scenario, we've got two years. And the crux of that is what happens in Ukraine.
0: Okay, say, say we take the worst-case scenario, the two-year scenario. How much capability generation can we achieve in that time?
5: It would be enough for the sort of scenarios we might imagine, which would be Russian move in, say, Moldova, Russian moves in uh, Estonia, Latvia, using the minorities, in Lithuania, using the, um, the issue of Kaliningrad, maybe in the eastern Mediterranean. Uh, using Turkish Cyprus as a sort of a fulcrum, possibly claims against Finland, uh, moves in the North Atlantic against uh, cables and pipelines, which we know the Russians are thinking quite a lot about. So it would be a series of bits and pieces to completely unbalance and diminish Western Europe. Could we cope with that from a standing start now just about? But I think you've got to keep your fingers crossed.
0: Right. Well, all those ships, planes and vehicles taking part in Steadfast Defender might add up to significant military capability, but they also add up to a lot of carbon emissions. In the fight against climate change, militaries have a huge part to play. In the UK, for example, the Ministry of Defence is estimated to be responsible for around half of all central government carbon emissions. Worldwide, militaries are thought to produce 5.5% of all carbon emissions. The Ministry of Defence and NATO do have action plans for tackling climate change, but a paper for the defence think tank, RUSI, is arguing that the alliance must take a more radical and active approach, lead not follow, on climate change. And the author, Dr. Rich Milburn, who lectures on environmental security at King's College London, argues there would be military benefits too.
4: I think one of the big problems why we're not making that significant progress on addressing climate change is a lack of uh, global and, and national, almost grand strategy to identify those sort of key levers that can deliver big cascading effects. So I think that's something you know, NATO defence can generally be quite strong on and create that sort of alignment and, and key drive along that and then i think also using operations capabilities and investments through sort of defense um, infrastructure and and industry can drive that so both in terms of putting the money and resource into uh, clean energy into synthetic fuels and into that innovation uh, and then also deployments in support to protect and restore global biodiversity both maritime and terrestrial to increase that carbon sequestration Um, so i think you know with the world we're in now there should be a responsibility for defence to have an environmental component to their options. Not only their only internal options, but actually protecting the environment, protecting against um, climate change. And, and that's the sort of two key areas I think they can deliver. in.
0: And you give a specific example in your paper of how a future Camp Bastion might be reimagined as a climate friendly base. So what would that look like exactly?
4: Yes, yeah, so, I mean, just to sort of this builds on work that's already Um, being undertaken, MOD, um, DOD, but I think it was the notion of setting a challenge to say that asking for a sustainable and more operationally uh, effective base, and I know General Noody's real big push is always it has to improve operational effectiveness, so that's something that has uh, less uh, logistical supply chain vulnerabilities, so for example producing fuel on site, so you don't have those long supply chain uh, vulnerabilities for for resupply, Uh, it's having somewhere where the food more food is produced uh, on site to help with that process as well, where water recycling um, is improved. So fundamentally it's a base with a lower cost, a lower impact, a lower boot print, but which is also still as if not more operationally effective. So, you know, I put in the example of like using recycled plastic or, you know, recovered waste locally to convert into plastic bricks, but it's making sure that those can withstand blasts so you've still got that defensive um, capability.
0: Well, let's bring in retired Lieutenant General Richard Newgie, who until recently was non-executive director for climate change and sustainability at the Ministry of Defence. General, welcome. Um, that Camp Bastion 2.0 sounds like a great idea, but is it a realistic one?
1: Well, I think all these things are possible if there's a will. And I think what we're seeing in the Ministry of Defence is absolutely the will to try and improve the sustainability because of the opportunities for improving combat effectiveness. And I would go one stage further and say that actually, of course, the logistic uh, combat logistic patrols that went down to Camp Bastion, if you like, 1.0 were protected by aviation, by helicopters, by armoured vehicles, by infantry, all of that is actually not really being used for its primary purpose, which should be defending the patrol bases or taking the fight to the enemy or however you want to describe it. Instead, they were guarding our own logistic resupply. So if you reduce the logistic resupply, you absolutely improve capability because you you get better use of things like aviation and of armour. Is it possible? Yes, it's possible. Um, Rolls Royce are actively looking at micronuclear that can produce enough energy for a site like Cambastion, which will also produce enough energy uh, when it's not being used for electricity for generating uh, sustainable fuels or for generating uh, water. There's a, there's a Dutch company that has got a machine that will produce a thousand litres of water from the air, the humidity from the atmosphere in the desert, in Africa in this case. So absolutely, all it needs is electricity. Absolutely, the technology is getting there. It's a question of whether we can get it into the military to be able to take advantage of that technology.
0: And uh, Richard Milburn, you also write that militaries should take a role in defending biodiversity. How and why? I
4: mean, one, for two reasons, just from a sort of security uh, perspective. So even the most recent IIR talks about um, the importance of biodiversity and how the loss... Of biodiversity is likely to contribute to, I think, six out of the top ten risks identified by the World Economic Forum. So, you know, it's, it's one of those underlying um, threat multipliers uh, and dangers to global security. So, there's a responsibility to address that. But it, it again comes back to this point of enhancing operational effectiveness. So, things like, um, you know, countering the illegal wildlife trade or countering illegal unreported fishing, you know, they create relatively low risk environments to innovate our capabilities, our techniques, and so on. I view those. Um, countering the illegal wildlife trade, uh, countering uh, illegal unreported fishing, as sort of microcosms and petri dishes, where uniformed uh, agencies, be there, army, navy, air force, can fundamentally enhance the way they operate. They can innovate as well. Where there's a lower threat to life, you know, you don't have IED alley when you're out on a uh, countering the illegal wildlife patrol. And if you look even at the asymmetry of the costs, currently a Houthi drone that costs twenty thousand dollars is being blown out of the sky by a million dollar uh, missile you know, that's just not sustainable. Whereas if we go into an environmental space and we say, you know, we don't have a lot of resources, therefore we need to innovate, as Ukraine is doing now, you know, with $20,000 drones that can take out a tank, that creates a space for Western militaries, NATO militaries, actually to say, okay, how do we innovate through that? I don't think it should be, you know, 50% of NATO is deployed to protect the environment. I think that would be absurd, but there should be capabilities to deliver that. And then using it as an innovation space, Um, you know, I talk about the notion of having Churchill sort of corkscrew thinkers coming out that, you know, were so effective in World War Two, actually, these smaller operations, more mission command can deliver a really big effect, both to protect biodiversity, but also to enhance capability and create that space for innovation.
0: And Richard Nugy, the security case for investing money and military efforts into environmental protection presents a fairly compelling logic, but it's a long term job. And when we have wars in Europe and the Middle East, growing global instability, is it something that the UK and NATO allies can really afford to factor in right now?
1: Um huh. Uh, I think this is really difficult. Um, I think this is really difficult because we already have a stretched navy. We already have a stretched army, and the air force are protecting our skies against um uh, you know Russian bombers coming into our airspace up in the north. So already we are seeing ourselves being stretched um just to cope with the violence that we have around the world in the form of wars, let alone the asymmetric which uh, Richard's just spoken about. so can can we afford to i think I think the answer is. Can we afford not to at least put some protection uh, for the environment into our thinking and i think i think actually it does lead to innovative, innovative thinking so the royal navy is looking at uncrewed boats which uh, use uh, sustainable fuels that sort of thinking could be used for patrolling maritime uh, protected areas and things like that i think there is opportunity here to try and experiment but it's going to be on a very small scale i think uh, because because our forces are really stretched at the moment mm.
0: And Richard Milburn, one of the threads throughout your paper is that there is military advantage to be had from a more active approach to climate change. How long would it take to deliver that military
4: advantage? Well, I think some of it can be relatively quickly. I mean, you only need to look at the battlefield in Ukraine to see how quickly military innovation can happen when it's forced. You know, when you're short of funds and in that case, you know, there's tanks rolling towards you. You can actually um, create that space so again with small operations that are given mission command and said, "Okay, not only do we want you to protect biodiversity within this space, but actually we want you to be constantly innovating. You know, partnering with DSTL, uh, partnering with some of the you know the startup sort of piece through uh, through defence as well to develop these innovations. Actually, it could happen very, very." Quickly, and even if a company, a defence company, has got something off the shelf that they want to try out, you can try it out in a low threat to life um, area and then see how it can roll over. So, potentially, within sort of six to 12 months, you could have significant innovation as long as those environmental operations are specifically set up not only to protect biodiversity and provide good publicity that helps recruitment and so on, but actually, they are used as an innovation space.
0: And just finally, Richard Nugie, the UK MOD has committed to reaching net zero by 2050. How challenging is that? And how much will it change the work and lives of our servicemen and women?
1: Um, Well, I think when talking about this with the Secretary of State, I I described it that we'd have to throw a double six every day for the next 30 years. Um, This is going to be exceptionally difficult. And and in fact, uh, ministers rode back slightly from we're going to hit net zero by 2050 to we will do the very best we possibly can in order to hit net zero by 2050. And it's a subtle difference. And there's a really important point about it being net zero, not zero. We are going to um, balance off all the sequestering that we can do in our land with um, a What are going to be inevitably some legacy equipments that still use fossil fuels, or at the very least, e fuels, if we can make enough of the right type? So it is going to be very, very difficult. How how different is it going to feel? What I would like to think is that um, in the next 30 years, we'll see a lot more uh, use of autonomous or at least uncrewed equipment, um, because if you take the person out of the equipment, you can reduce its size very substantially. And its weight quite often because you're not providing uh, any form of armoured protection. If you do that, then the reality is you can use sustainable energy systems uh, rather than relying totally on fossil fuels. So I think we will see, and I think it's it's really important that defence has moved from a defence fuels um, agency to a defence operational energy agency. In other words, they have acknowledged uh, that fossil fuels are not the answer in the future and that we will look elsewhere for different types of fuels which are more um, uh, sustainable. So I think we'll see change um, both of equipment, we'll see change of um, quite possibly where we're going to fight and who we're going to fight with and who we're going to fight against. I think there's a whole different story about um, uh, how climate change, yes, it acts as a threat multiplier um, uh, in, in terms of increasing the likelihood of conflict over uh, scarce resources. And that may affect where we deploy in the future. So, so I think we will see a very different approach in 30 years time to what we see today. We'll see different equipment. And most importantly, we'll see a different energy source for a lot of our equipment. But we will still have some legacy.
0: Really interesting to talk to you. Thank you so much to both of you for your time, Lieutenant General Richard Newgie and Dr Richard Milburn. Thank you. So, so, Mike, it's a real juggling act, isn't it? When you're fighting a fire, it's quite hard to put effort into preventing the next one at the same time.
5: Yes. And the difference between war and peace is very important. I mean, I remember last year we were talking about um, the blowing of the Novokovka Dam when the Russians blew the dam in Kherson. And I was talking about the environmental damage that that did. And a, a military colleague of mine said, yeah, sure. But if I'm a military man and I'm fighting a war, I don't care. I don't care about yeah. the environmental damage. I'm fighting a war, and that's true. I mean, that's the, that's the way of it. But in peacetime, it is important. And I think um, Richard Milburn and Richard Newtier were talking about something very important there. And there's another issue, I think, which relates to it, which is Generation Z, the young people in Britain and elsewhere who were born around about the turn of this century, because they have no problem grasping the importance of climate change as the threat as a, a threat yeah. to their lifestyle. They haven't quite grasped the importance of European security yet, but the, the idea that the military, as we unite both of those existential threats of our era and of, the, of their lives going forward, I think that's really important. And I think to connect Generation Z to what the military is doing in this space, the environmental space is extremely important.
0: Mike, thank you. And my thanks to all of our guests. That is all for now. Professor Michael Clarke and I will be back with another sit rep next Thursday. Until then, you can keep in touch with the latest on our news website, forces.net. For now, though, from me, Kate Chabot, thank you for listening. Bye bye.